0: Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater, Hello. and Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the return of Partygate, Ukraine, 50 days on, the murder of David Amos and the French elections. So this week, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were fined by the police. It makes them the first office holders, respectively, to have been sanctioned by the law while in office. Tom, this Partygate scandal is back with a vengeance. What have you made of it?
1: I've been slightly more unmoved this time around, I think it's fair to say. I think a lot of us have sort of oscillated wildly between being quite infuriated by the double standards and hypocrisy and all the rest of it, but also quite unmoved by what is ultimately being built up as a big political scandal, but what is about having birthday cake. Or some socially distanced rink in a garden, and you kind of move from one to the other. I think with Partygate itself, it was the fact that this started out as a kind of pearl clutching media campaign, Mm. trying to prove it was one rule for them and one rule for us, and kind of often quite kind of inane kind of gotchas over minor breakings of the rules. But when you stack all these things on top of each other, and then you look at some of the more egregious sort of violations, like the. Party in the Number Ten Garden at the height of the first lockdown Mm. on the very same day, Oliver Dowden announcing that we can meet one person outside. You can. It was just to the point where it was just an insult to our intelligence. I think the thing that gets missed in all of this, though, is the fact that you've got a media which is hopping mad about this particular issue, talking about it as a constitutional crisis, acting as if this is the worst thing that's ever happened and the most shameful thing that's ever happened in British politics. Mm. And yet, this is the same media that fundamentally failed to submit the lockdown to any kind of proper scrutiny, if anything, egged it on. They become obsessed with you know brooch- uh, breaches of these unprecedented rules, but not particularly interested in how these unprecedented rules came about in the first place. And I think that's the, the place that I end up with all of this, I guess, is that in the end, what's worse, you know, yeah. keeping kids out of school, old people having to die alone, criminalising social interaction, or the fact that the people at the top broke the ridiculous rules that they wrote for everyone else is bad, but it's not the the biggest issue under the sun, definitely.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ella, we're talking really about a £50 fine, mm. and yet we've had some people come out and say that this basically calls into question Johnson's unf- uh, unfitness to deal with the war in Ukraine. How can he stand up to Putin yeah. if he's a criminal like this? I mean, it has just gone a bit far, hasn't it, some of the reaction?
2: Well, I think part of the problem is that it has been turned into this question of the PCN, and uh, and that completely trivialises it because obviously you know, they're, the suggestion that a prime minister would or indeed a chance that would resign because they got a talking to by the police and a fixed penalty notice seems ridiculous. And actually, you know, there was a cabinet minister doing the rounds uh, on the radio this morning who was kind of almost sort of chuckling and saying, well, you know, I've had six points on my license. Uh, You know, we all all bend the rules a little bit. You know, we all make mistakes and he's come out and he's apologised and blah, blah, blah. And of course he's right. But that's, you know, as Tom says, that wasn't the point. But the fact that the media has made it about... A prime minister being cautioned or whatever it is by the police, and the the fact that this is a um the the question of the fine means they ignore all the actual real substance of it, which mm. is that you had uh, politicians laying down law because they believed that the public couldn't be trusted to take sensible decisions, make small risks to pay off, you know, be- bigger benefits. You know, uh, wear a mask to go see your granny, whatever it is that they thought we needed really strict restrictions, but that they could make their own decisions. But obviously the reason why the media won't focus on that is because they bought it as well. They mm. they were into that extreme lockdown narrative. It was very hard. You have to remember that throughout the last two years, it was both very difficult to hear anyone on um, mainstream media channels criticise lockdown or suggest that there might be a different route to doing this. And those who did got, you know, like talk radio got taken off or banned or slapped with these kind of um little posters on social media saying that they were saying something dangerous in relation to COVID regulations. So, you know, I have to admit it's one of those kind of catch-22 things. It's I am really angry about it. In a different context, I would want to see heads roll, not because of the birthday cake, but because of the fact of this sort of complete breach of public trust. But it's also the case that Number one, the people who are gunning for Boris Johnson aren't like, aren't caring about this principle. Lots of them are anti Brexit people who want to see him gone for a whole different reason. I don't want to give any sucker to them. And it's also the case that who would step in in his place? I mean, that's the terrible bind that we are in in contemporary (laughs) politics, which is that you have to think about these things. You have to think. Well, would I want, you know, Liz Truss or anyone else to be in the prime ministerial position at the moment in the context of war? No, I wouldn't. So I for now, stay there.
0: I know she didn't say Rishi, he would have been the obvious uh, oh, candidate no chance. Uh, just no a few chance. months ago. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it's just... Now the foreign
1: secretary can't find Russia on the map. You
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's worth thinking, you know, you're talking about the media, you know, gunning for lockdown. I mean... The the COVID r- restrictions and rules and laws only folded at the end of March. I mean, just this Christmas, people were talking about having another lockdown, despite mm. it being you know a year on from the, mm. from the vaccine rollout. It's it's interesting how quickly we forget some of this mm. stuff. I mean, Tom, what have you made that side of it?
1: Well, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of kind of amnesia about these things, I suppose. I mean, even in terms of the rules themselves, because they were so confusing. I mm. mean, there's so much latitude even for the police to how they're going to find you. I mean, the nature of those regulations was such they gave an awful lot of discretion to the authorities, which is why the powers were so abused. I mean, mm. you saw all those kind of ridiculous situations um, of police overreach. Um, and a good example of this is the fact that the number 10 birthday cake, allegedly 10 minute long party for Boris Johnson's birthday, that was brief to the Times newspaper at the time yeah. that it happened um, no one batted like it uh, <laughs> because these things are kind of a bit confusing um so again it's it, it's um there's, there's short memories about a lot of this stuff. I think but with Partagat, I think it's the sheer volume of it. It's the sheer sort of brazenness of it. And it's the it's the lying, basically, to yeah. kind of pretend that it didn't happen. And I think this, you know, it's genuinely really damaged Johnson. I don't, I don't think he can really properly recover from this. Um, it's just contributed to that sense that he's really sort of spent and in it for himself. And then you kind of look around and think, what else is he offering? Net zero. I mean, mm. it, it, it doesn't add up to very much. But ultimately, the judgment should be with Voters, and it seems like um, people who don't like him in politics and the media are just desperate to secure a resignation by as a way of just getting rid of him, without having to bother the electorate with it, which is something which definitely troubles me. I think I have to say that it's as the days roll on. In particular, you do you are just sort of struck by the level of sort of histrionics from the media about this stuff. Talked to you know gesturing a bit to it there about them calling it a constitutional crisis and stuff. You know the. Journalists who uncovered this running around acting as if they've genuinely uncovered, like Watergate or something. Mm. I think it's really quite strange. I mean, it's, it speaks to um, the degradation of journalism to a certain degree. But I think it also speaks to just the nature of political journalism sort of since Brexit and a bit before then, which is that they have become increasingly sort of unhinged a little bit. Brexit just completely scrambled their brains. Mm. And so you see them running around talking, acting as if essentially, in 2016, Boris Johnson invented lying. Yeah. Or that before 2016, all prime ministers were utterly morally unimpeachable Mm. and would never do anything as crazy as lie or, you know, (laughs) mislead anyone or break the law. This might be the first prime minister to be caught breaking the law. I doubt he was the only one ever to (laughs) break the law. You see this kind of like faux naivety in Mm. relation to all this stuff. And as a result of that, I think we're just seeing one of those sort of, uh, one of the the crescendos of that particular sort of... um, aspects in the media, which is that they've because Brexit just scrambled their brains so much, they've taken to being incredibly hysterical about absolutely anything Boris Johnson does, which makes it more difficult to criticize him because yeah. it's bad, but it's not the worst thing that's ever happened <laughs> let's put it that way
0: so on the day we're recording this um we're now fifty days into the invasion of Ukraine. And it's interesting to sort of cast our minds back to when this first happened, when when Russia first invaded. And there was actually very little hope at the time for Ukraine. Even US intelligence sources were suggesting that Kiev could fall within days. But now we're looking at it and Ukraine is standing strong.
1: Tom, what have you made of this? I think it's been really incredible and I think it really sort of pays testament to how strong the Ukrainian resistance has been, but also how strong their commitment to fighting for their nation and self-determination has been. I mean, in a sense, I think the impetus for Russia to invade is quite similar to the impetus of some of the kind of international relations set who've been basically demanding that Ukraine should, you know, chuck it all in at the nearest possible opportunity. It's this idea that Ukraine is kind of a fake country. Mm. That it's kind of phony. That um, as soon as the Russian tanks would roll in, you know, you would have, uh, the nation would easily fall because it would be split loyalties. No one would want to fight for it. That's just been completely obliterated by what's taking place. And the way in which the dynamics in the war have shifted have been nothing short of remarkable. I mean, I think it was interesting, we're, we're recording this the day after um, there was this explosion on the flagship of the Black Sea fleet, the Russian fleet. Um, and it's the same warship that you remember in the early days of the invasion mm. um, was threatening those soldiers on Snake Island and saying, surrender or we'll blow you up. And they essentially said, fuck you. Now we're in a position where this warship is essentially, it's either been sunk or being towed away either. Because according yeah. to the Russians, there was just some, you know, miraculous explosion or according to the Ukrainians, they actually, you know, shot at it. It just as As an example of how this has gone from being seen as a sort of, Uh, plucky, but ultimately, you know, it's never going to, it's never going to go anywhere kind of (laughs) defence, doomed, exactly, defence of of their nation. Thank you for that. Um, To something where they've really genuinely pushed Russia back. Now we're not talking about Russia trying to roll into Kiev, you know, they've moved their forces out from the outskirts of Kiev. It's all refocusing it in the south and the east. And um, I I think it's a testament to again, just how kind of strong that feeling is and how fundamentally wrong both Russia and even a lot of Western observers were in thinking that Ukraine was essentially a sort of fake country that um, a lot of its own citizens wouldn't fight for. That's just been completely obliterated, for lack of a better phrase, in the fight that they put up this past 50 days.
0: Ella?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point that at the start, there was lots of people saying, well can you even really talk about Ukrainian sovereignty because look, it's so corrupt Mm. and Mm. um, yeah, sure. You know, the word democracy is a bit of a difficult descriptive word to use in relation to Ukraine because of the nature of, you know, what went on politically in terms of corruption or other stuff uh, beforehand and sort of alliance with oligarchs and all the rest of it. However, the test of a nation and its people and its belief in citizenship and sovereignty and all of that. Is the best test of it is obviously when it comes under um, pressure from invasion. And we know that Ukrainians have stepped up and proved that whereas there might have been um, questions beforehand, they are acting as a solidified nation. And there's lots of people who still maintain it's almost like a childish response to war. So there was kind of real outrage from the international relations set. But I had this myself as well. You were thinking, well, how does what I think about Western intervention play into this? I have a principal position against Western intervention. But of course, the nature of this war mm. kind of throws a lot of that out the window. And you have to think in terms of what's happening today. I mean, you know, Tim Black wrote a great article on Spiked this week, looking at how, you know there's this sort of this this sort of double thing happening where people will show solidarity for ukraine and say isn't it wonderful or isn't it terrible that they're being bombed or this story of this woman who lost her daughter and you know all this like you know go along with all the horrible stuff and say poor sympathy there but then when something practical happens like boris johnson goes over Yeah, it does a bit of a photo op, but as Tim says, you know, argues for some material things and also does the important thing that photo ops are meant to do, which is send, broadcast a message across Europe and um, to Russia as well. They kind of say, no, you can't, you know, Boris is an asshole and, oh, this is just sort of like playing around and we still hate him. And you think, how do you think they're going to win the war if not with material and political support from they're European and other allies, so it's a kind of you you don't really know what these people want from this. you think they want to Ukraine to win in this kind of fantasy land where nothing difficult or complicated has to happen whereas that's not that's not the real world, and that's not the real world of war
0: and Tom, I mean obviously, there are other voices, although they've been slightly more muted, calling for even greater intervention in mm. Ukraine, you know essentially calling for us to go to war with Russia directly. I mean, thankfully, that kind of line of thinking hasn't really taken
1: over, right? Well, I think the West has actually been quite cautious in mm. relation to those questions throughout all of this and for good reason because you don't want to provoke a broader conflict unnecessarily. Um, you don't want to just rush into world war three um mm. for the hell of it to demonstrate how serious you are about this particular issue but what they have done and what they're continuing to do which is to arm ukraine which is to give them what they need to fight for themselves it remains their fight um but it's still something which you know our solidarity is not just hashtags and you know sending moral support and taking refugees as an actual proper consequence which is to give them what they need in order to um resist the aggressor um and Again, we can talk about how that's a difficult line to walk and that there's Mm. certain things that um, could ultimately provoke but we need to remember who started this really yeah. um, you know it's important there's important points to be made about what's happened over since the fall of the Soviet Union in relation to NATO expansion the humiliation of Russia you know the tra- the um transition from communism and the, way that, the politics of that and how these general forces and some of the decisions that have been made in the west have contributed to the kind of leadership and the kind of geopolitical position that uh, Russia finds itself in at the moment but i think for To talk about in this situation as if the horror is of um, the West arming the Ukrainians to defend their own nation, it's Russia for invading the country, Yeah, you know, and I think that's something which needs to be talked about. It's just a fundamentally different context, you know, trying to topple a... Some despot somewhere, just because the West happens to dislike him, or they feel that they could extract some strategic gain from doing so, or from you know arming a bunch of crazed Islamists because you are, you're you they you know you like them slightly more than the other group of crazed Islamists. I mean, this <laughs> is a fundamentally different proposition. This is yeah. a, a nation state with democratically elected leadership, troubled though it is, um, but still uh, fighting for its own survival and fighting for its own sovereignty and self determination. I think it's just a completely different picture. But at the same time, of course, that doesn't mean being gung-ho about these things. Yeah. That doesn't mean demonstrating one's commitment to these values by trying to provoke a conflict that I don't think anyone would benefit from in terms of it being that much broader, sucking all the, all these other forces and essentially taking ultimately taking the initiative away from the Ukrainians themselves and making them one part in a much bigger, much more destructive conflict.
2: And it is really important to keep a watchful eye on that side of things mm. because, you know, earlier this week we had this sort of, rumour circulating of whether or not chemical weapons had been used. And instantly, instantly, with no verification that it had happened, you have a statement from Liz Truss saying, well, we will hold back at nothing. You know, nothing is off the table, which everyone in the British media took to mean NATO troops on the ground. And then the next two days was all about, should we have, should we send in troops? And you think, Jesus, hang on a minute for something that hasn't even been verified. You're already jumping there. And then there was Joe Biden's use of the word genocide yeah. this week, which equally, you know, is kind of a very unhelpful way of politically escalating things um but you know particularly at the time when other sets of the american political class are still talking about the need for not compromise but getting around the negotiating table i think if you start throwing it's a bit like the war crimes thing if you start throwing around the word genocide it's very hard to get around a negotiating table so um, you know, the funny thing is that Boris Johnson has stood out this week as being someone who has handled it very well, very sensibly, in the kind of way you would hope a sensible leader in a difficult geopolitical situation to do. Um, whereas there, there are some of them that are still a bit mad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's move on to talk about David Amos. His murderer, Ali Harbi Ali, was sentenced to life imprisonment this week. He was found guilty of stabbing the Conservative MP outside his constituency office in South End last year. I mean, Tom, the discussion around this has been quite strangely muted, I think it's fair to say.
1: Oh definitely. I remember the day after um the trial concluded, um, I was going through the kind of political the L- London Politico email, which is obviously very read amongst journalists. I'm not sure if anyone else reads it, uh, <laughs> but at the at the very bottom, the very last story there was one line mm. about this particular trial. And I thought that was really telling. I think yeah. that told us everything about our skewed priorities and the really unserious and frankly bizarre way in which we treat Islamist terrorism and that we treat this particular instance, um, definitely. I it, mean, from It wasn't the, on
0: any any front page either. Exactly. Um, it Just wasn't, a tiny bit in the
1: Telegraph. Tiny um, little paragraph in the Telegraph wasn't on any of the other front pages and Brendan O'Neill's written something for us this week. Comparing it to the aftermath of the trial of Thomas Mayer, who was mm. the far right extremist who murdered Joe Cox, where there was actually this backlash against the Daily Mail because it didn't put it on its front page, which I think is an interesting sort of contrast there. Um, You know, loads of very prominent commentators demanding to know why this hadn't happened. Well, why not in this situation? From the off, I think the the David Amos case, more than any other, has just completely revealed our cowardice in relation to the Islamist terrorist question. It was pretty clear from very early on in the investigation what this was. Obviously, it wasn't Mm. confirmed, but nevertheless, all the signs pointed towards the police were treating it as an act of Islamist political murder, effectively. Um, And yet the response, as we talked about many times, was to start talking about online anonymity, to talk about trolling. There was even a David's Law, which was to ban online anonymity, as if, again, the problem here was that he got accosted by some Twitter trolls or something like that, which is fundamentally not what happened. And I think we've seen that again repeated in the wake of the trial. We've seen the Speaker of the House of Commons talk about how this is a good prompt to remind us that we all need to be nicer to each yeah. other in politics, as if that will dissuade some Islamist scumbag from carrying out another atrocity. And it, it, you would hope that this would be the point at which, or something like this would be the point at which the political class and the media class would kind of grow up, would recognise the reason they're not talking about this is because ultimately they're scared of talking about this for all kinds of reasons. But they shouldn't be because there are lethal consequences if they don't. Um, But there's been nothing this week or in the last few years really which would suggest they're about to shake themselves out of that particular moral muddle that they find themselves in.
0: Ella, I mean, we should talk a bit more about that kind of online anonymity question. I mean, it was crazy Mm. looking back on it
1: where, you
0: know, there's almost a sense of unreality where... MP after MP in, in Parliament, you know, shared their stories of um, people being rude to them on Twitter and it, it was just bad.
2: Well, if you were going to be really nasty, you'd say that there was a, it was just quite a despicable, nar- a display of narcissism um, and that actually in the wake of one of their colleagues' brutal murder, too many people in the House of Parliament made it about themselves in this really quite distasteful way um talking about yeah where how many people had said that they were fat or stupid online or something like this and when you watch now obviously things that couldn't be made public at the time the video footage of ali um straight away after um the incident and him being interviewed by police he it very quickly offers up the fact that this was terror related they say what as what what drove you or something he's like terrorism you know it's all it's crystal clear from the get go they don't have to squeeze it out of him um and you understand that obviously for legal reasons nothing none of that can be put out um at the Start. Mm. But there was this real disjunct where you, you know, most people, without buying into stereotypes or all that stuff that gets leveled at people who try and talk about Islamist terrorism, that quite clearly this was something not some kind of tweeter gone mad, but it was related to it had all the hallmarks of all the previous attacks we've seen in recent years. And the people who have the most political power m p s who are meant to be thinking about public interest, who are meant to be leading the public and talking truthfully, just took this in a complete wild, different direction. David's law was instituted by Marc Francois, who you know is a was a very good friend of David Amos, and um, actually, I was debating him on the evening of Amos's memorial, and he got very upset when I suggested that David's law had nothing to do with Amos's murder. But you do think, I mean, even someone who was that close to him was able to kind of basically piggyback off mm, of his friend's yeah. murder to, to talk about this completely different thing of online anonymity.
0: To demand censorship, essentially. Yeah which,
2: yeah, which was basically a desire to kind of clamp down at, at, and also insulate. This is what I'm talking about, the kind of narcissism of MPs. What they wanted to do was to take the murder of this man who, in particular, David Amos, had a particular belief in face-to-face open surgeries. Mm. He was very much for, you know, the idea that you had to be open and transparent with your constituents and, you know, not just press the flesh, but actually have a kind of serious interaction with people. And all these other people who, all these other his fellow MPs who hate the idea of that, don't do surgeries and actually want to be even more um, kind of cushioned away from the public by means of not allowing us to talk straight with them online. Saw their opportunity, and so it just leaves you with a really bad taste in your mouth. Mm. And And I bet the people who were close to Amos, I wouldn't be surprised if they were really upset at the fact that his name not only now is associated with all this nonsense, but also that no one is talking about him. I mean, I think that's a real tragedy that no one is talking about the fact that an elected representative of this country and a human being was murdered by this guy, and we've all we've all moved on. That can't be right.
0: One thing that has emerged from the trial of um, Ali Harbi Ali was that he was actually um, an alumnus, shall we say, of the Prevent de mm. scheme. And he's not alone. He's, you know, many, many terrorists who've gone on to commit atrocities have actually been through this official de mm. scheme. I mean, what have you made of that, Tom?
1: Well, it's the story that keeps repeating itself. I mean, we've seen it in relation, I think, to the killer at the Reading terrorist mm-hmm. attack. Um, of, I, th- I believe the, he didn't kill anyone, but the guy tried to stop him, even in Streatham and had contact with the prevent scheme. Yeah. Um, as and Usman Khan is obviously the, the clearest example because the fact that he killed two people at a conference at London Bridge on rehabilitation in which yeah. he was kind of invited as almost like a poster boy for someone who had gone through that successfully. This story keeps repeating itself. I think this is a, another indication of how we just do not take this threat particularly seriously. Uh, there was a quote in the press this week um, from someone who knows more about these, about de radicalisation than I do, saying that prevent is ultimately like a parish council response to a mm. counter terror issue. You know, getting people in and having a word with them and asking them if, you know, they plan to act on their crazed fantasies is just not, it's just ultimately insufficient and doesn't recognize how serious this is, that this is fundamentally a political threat. And we've got to remember about the scale of it. This is the, the thing that we're ignoring is essentially the vicious ideology which has killed, if you take 7-7 onwards, 93 people in Britain. We're not talking here about people who just get a bit carried away because of the slightly toxic nature of political discourse. Ali, interestingly, said he was surprised to find out the constituency surgeries were even a thing. This is not someone Mm. who followed political debate and the Brexit debate online and was inspired because Boris Johnson said humbug in Parliament and he thought MPs are there for you know, fair game for physical violence and murder. It's ultimately absurd. The response that we saw in in the wake of the attack, I think would be as bizarre as if someone started saying, in memory of David Amos, we need to, you know, bring the speed limit down to 20 miles an hour nationwide. I mean, it's just yeah. completely unrelated. It shows how unserious we're being. And we know the reason that people are dodging this is because of the fact that they've got it into their heads that this is a dangerous subject to talk about for two different reasons, because of the fact that they're... Uh, the broader public, white working class people in particular always the kind of implied villain of the piece. Uh, if you have this discussion, you're basically just going to whip them up into some sort of anti-Muslim pogrom that they're incapable of grasping the difference between the ideology of Islamism and Islam, a religion that um, millions of law-abiding Brits, people they work with and are friends with, follow and never harm anybody. Um, or on the flip side is that this will somehow upset Muslims to talk mm. about this. That This thing, which they are poor as much as anyone else, um, which is plaguing their own communities as much as anything else, is something that is too hot to handle for them. It just projects such a low view. Um, it reflects the cowardice of the political class. And you would think that when one of their own was had their lives claimed because of this ideology, it would again spark a bit more of a serious conversation. But as we all know, it, it hasn't, even this week.
0: And finally, let's talk about the French elections. So on Sunday, French voters went to the polls for the first round of their presidential elections. And in a bit of a rerun of um, 2017, in a few weeks' time, Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent president, will face Marine Le Pen again. I mean, Tom, it's a bit odd. I mean, it doesn't speak that well of Macron that he's ultimately in the same position as he was five years ago.
1: I mean, he was supposed to be the the guy who would vanquish Populism. Now, I don't like to throw that word around too liberally. And obviously the national rally formerly national front has a slightly longer history uh, than recent years but and a much grimmer one. But nevertheless, the idea that he was going to push back the far right in France, certainly, that he was going to kind of herald the kind of rolling back of the general tide of dissatisfaction that was forcing voters to go for parties that were against the establishment in one form or another. Mm. Um, and as you say, we're ending up in a situation where it's Le Pen and Macron in the runoff again, Le Pen getting a much better showing than last time. I mean, some of the snap polls after the first round were suggesting that there could be a couple of points in it, which is remarkable. Within the margin of error. Within the margin of error, exactly. Things have settled down a little bit now. But um, ultimately, now Le Pen and her party have become a feature of French politics. And this is all under Macron's rule. And this this is something that shouldn't really have surprised anyone. You know, there was this kind of tendency for particularly the kind of... um, liberal European elite, if you like, to kind of just breathe a sigh of relief after 2017. And that's if it was job done. The triumphalism was bizarre. You know, mm-hmm. there's um, front covers of The Economist, I think, of him walking on water yeah. and things like this. And yet, if you looked at the number of abstentions, even in that vote, and th- this time around it's gone up slightly, you're seeing the dissatisfaction. We've had the whole Gilets Jean pro- uh, you know, rising, essentially, in the course of the past few years which was fundamentally a kind of working class anti-macron movement in many mm. respects um, against the political establishment and it's just quite clear that he is not the, the the problem such as it is that he was supposed to solve he fundamentally hasn't um there's obviously still a lot of dissatisfaction there's still a lot of people who will not want to vote for either of them but one thing that i think you're starting to see is that um people are, you dare say there's going to be fewer people who are going to be willing to go in and hold their nose and vote for macron than the yeah. last time such as that he's he's failed, you know, to really sort of offer any kind of alternative to the dissatisfaction they feel. So I think the fact that it's been closer this time around just tells us a lot about Macron as much as anything else.
0: The leprosy of populism is how he <laughs> memorably <laughs> described it a, a few years ago. And yeah, I mean, looking at those results, there's there's now a sort of majority in favour of anti-establishment candidates. Some of them very nasty, in fact. You know, you think about. 7% voting for Zemmour, who is even further to the right of Le Pen. Mm. Le Pen was able to actually make herself seem semi-reasonable mm. <laughs> in contrast
1: to, mm. to Zemmour. Still not fully detoxify such <laughs> this, Exactly, say, but Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Lots well, of grim policies. But.
2: I think that's, you know, lot. I wouldn't want to be a French citizen right now because yeah. you have the kind of the, the poison of Le Pen, really, and even though she's tried to, and, you know, in some ways quite successfully managed to, skate over some things tone down some things but it's all, very much all still there even if she talks about the importance of nations and nationalism you know what that that's what she's actually talking about in relation to her anti-immigrant sentiment but there there was an article on Spike this week that talked about kind of long read on the french elections that talked about the fact that you know in the in the last few french elections there have always the the front runner someone like macron have always been set against far right person mm. and the thing that
0: three of the past five elections yeah so yeah.
2: so the question is where is this famous french left you know there's so you know uh, we, we in britain often talk about oh you know we we never do anything kind of concrete in relation to left wing ideology it's so pathetic at least in france they kind of like pick up cobblestones and all the rest of it and yeah we saw a bit of that with the gilets jaunes but but actually if you look at the fragmentation of the french left over the last um, 10 or more years and indeed the inability of Melenchon to um, to get into the the running in the second round, mainly because he embodies this kind of um, middle-class leftism, which doesn't have any time for the gilets jaunes. You know, uh, in fact, this article on Spike made the point that there is far less actual working-class people in French left politics than there ever has been before. And so this is just a mm. genuine sense of people being out of touch. And then on the other hand, you have a very strong message from the Macron government very strong that says what happens when you go out and protest, you know, with the gilets jaunes or anything else. What happens if you raise your disquiet about the French government? We send in police and we crack your skull open, which is what they did to the gilets jaunes in Paris. We'll gas you and we'll beat you up, and there will be no room for you to make your voice heard in in this kind of in this French democracy. And so, um, it's a, hardly a surprise that not just left wingers, but Sort of like the people who are sort of almost liberal centrists who would have had time for Macron previously have watched what he's done over the last two years. And, you know, there's a little bit of pandemic stuff playing in there as well because French was so France was so extreme in relation to some of its restrictions. I'm going to be watching closely the spoiled ballots because I yeah. think they will tell you a lot. And obviously there's more notice in France than they are in other countries. But, you know, I don't I would not be able to vote for either of them. I don't think even there's that much of a strong kind of, you know, what you saw in relation to Trump with people picking Trump rather than um, Clinton, that is even kind of dampened here because Le Pen is so <laughs> extreme and Macron is so odious. Yeah. So it really is, it's quite a depressing, but telling example of what's happening in a lot of European countries, which is you have an absent left and then you have a kind of a relatively extreme right kind of picking picking up pace with this lethargic and also quite authoritarian technocratic kind of centrism, which, you know, you'd hope that something emerges out of this in the future, that there's some kind of alternative, but it's, it's a depressing picture.
1: But what do you think is going to happen, Fraser? Because you actually like speak French, follow these things much closely. than I, I,
0: I do think, I, I do think Macron is still going to win. I do think that there are enough people out there to hold their nose. And I think that actually, you know, we saw, Uh, last week, as the the polls tightened in favour of Le Pen, there was even some polls suggesting she was going to come out on top. I think that's sort of scared enough people to want to go Mm. out. You know, at the end of the day, if as long as Macron can say that he's the candidate of the Fifth Republic, you know, in France, they talk about this thing called the Republican Front where people bandy together to keep out the extremes. As long as Macron is able to do that, then he'll be fine. But let's not pretend Mm. that Macron is an attractive candidate. That he has anything in particular to offer France, certainly no model that fellow Europeans should want to follow. Um, you know, as I, I agree. I mean, it's it's quite a depressing picture. I think that um, the abstentions are going to be the real story. Last time around, I had the highest you know level of spoiled ballots, and people are faced with the same miserable choice. <laughs> <laughs> So hopefully next time around something more interesting and something more progressive emerges out of this. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.